Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. My guest is Madhuri Shaker, who is a playwright. Her play in Love and Warcraft will be streaming live September 4th through 12th and then on demand September 18th through 25th as an Interact at-home initiative production by ACT, American Conservatory Theater, featuring students from the MFA program. Madhuri Shaker is a playwright with several plays, including A Nice Indian Boy, Queen, House of Joy, which played last year at Cal Shakes, and Daba on Devon Avenue, which was about to open at the Victory Garden Theater in Chicago, but closed down because of the pandemic. In Love and Warcraft, it was at Custom Made Theater a few years back in San Francisco. I believe I saw it. This is a play that's been around for a few years, and we've seen these Zoom plays. We've seen various kinds of productions. What exactly is this? I understand that there was a test of it uh, last week to see how it worked. What are people going to see when they buy tickets and they get the link? Yeah. So actually, this is a reprise of the MFA production that they did back in April and May by the MFA students and Peter. I got a chance to see it back when they did it in the spring, and it just blew me away. So this was before all the shutdowns started happening. This was just going to be a normal MFA production of this play, and this play has had many productions. So it it was just going to be like a really great acting exercise for these students. But then when the shutdowns happened, Peter decided, what if I completely translate this play to the Zoom medium and not just do a reading, right? Not just do actors staring into the camera, doing the lines, you know, and we follow along that way. What if I actually make a production given all of the possibilities and limitations of Zoom. And he he did such an incredible job. It was one of, honestly, the best theatrical experiences of my life because of the context of everything. You know, it was early in the shutdowns and we were all really feeling the loss of life theater and feeling the uncertainty of everything. And this was a moment where I got to hang out in the chat room <laughs> with a bunch of my theater friends that I wouldn't be able to see otherwise. And we got to watch a play and it really felt like a play. It was just wonderful. It was a live performance by all of these actors. If person A is talking to person B, do they turn toward that little box and talk to them? How does that work? Yes, they do sometimes. They do that sometimes. They don't do that with every scene. In some scenes, it actually feels weirdly seamless, like they're, the actors are matching eye lines and they're talking to each other across boxes. And there's like set decoration in the background which makes it feel like they're in the same space. So sometimes that happens. Other times what you're watching seems to be like two different camera angles. But again, through very clever set decoration, what it feels like they're in the same room. 
And then sometimes uh, there's just like something else going on. <laughs> there's like really, really innovative use of, of cell phone cameras, you know, and all sorts of things. It's kind of hard to explain. It feels like this wonderful, incredible hybrid of live performance, television, theater, um, and just, it's just something completely new. So this live stream version is going to be playing for about seven or eight performances then? I think so, yeah. I think there's going to be a, a few live ones, so everybody gets to join in the fun and like watch it live and be in the chat room, which is really, really fun. And then I think if you miss those, you get to see a recording of one of those productions. That's the stream version. So these are actually like live plays. So there could be mistakes just like in a theater. Exactly. And these are all actors who are in their apartments in different parts of the country and even out of the country. One of the actors back in spring, he was at home in Brazil, but they were all sharing time together. You know, this is like, you know, in theater, you share space and you share time. We're not sharing space anymore, but they were sharing time together. It was really beautiful. The backgrounds are created by a third party and inserted behind, or they do that as part of their work? There are no digital backgrounds except for one scene, which if you're familiar with the play, I think you can guess what that scene will be. If you're not familiar with the play, I'm not going to spoil it. The actors are just in their apartments. However, through incredibly clever set decoration and incredibly clever framing, their apartments turn into different locations. There's this one incredible scene where two characters are in a bar and the camera angles are looking at them from the ground up. You have this feeling that you're watching them from like from the level of the, the bar. You're looking up at their faces and therefore you see the ceiling behind them and you see the ceiling and there are all of these fairy lights on the ceiling. So it feels like a hipster bar. And I was just so curious, how did you get out into a bar? What happened there? And it turns out that one actor, his apartment had that wooden wooden beam. So they, they were like, that's really pretty. Let's Let's just do a scene over there. And the other actor who was sharing the scene with him, she got under the table. She got under her wooden dining table and put fairy lights on the on the underside of her dining table and did the whole scene crouch down. <laughs> and so because of that, it feels like they're both in the same bar together, but they're not. They do such incredible, innovative things. You know, it's really amazing. Audrey Shaker, let's talk a little about the play. Now, it's been around for a while. It's comedy. Cyrano de Bergerac, kind of about a woman who prefers her life playing games. She also was a side hobby, writes love letters for different people. Then she has a client that she kind of becomes attracted to. A lot of your plays, in particular House of Joy, are very political. This one is not. Or is it? So when I wrote this play, and I wrote it in grad school, and I was 24 when I wrote this play, or 23. It was me when I was very young. And I sent it out and I thought, geez, you know, I was also writing my other play, A Nice Indian Boy at the time, which is about gay marriage in an Indian family. So yeah, I do write about stuff that's kind of big, but this play felt incredibly private, incredibly small to me, incredibly personal to me. And I was like, what, what am I doing? Who's going to care? But this wound up being the play that weirdly resonated the most with a lot of people and has kind of gave me my career. It resonates so deeply with women with young women. And I, I think because the play is all about, honestly, like the politics of sex and the politics of how do we perform sexuality? Who gets to enjoy sex? Who decides how we're supposed to enjoy sex? Who decides whether we're supposed to enjoy sex at all? 
what counts as desire, what doesn't count as desire. Like it's all of these things that are very, very personal that I was feeling definitely at the time still do. It's very gratifying when I hear from young people who see the plane. You know, this is a very tricky time in your life when you're in college and you're trying to figure out what you're about. And if you're really confused about sex, (laughs) it can be hard to find stories that directly talk about that feeling. And if you're confused about love and how it like gets itself enmeshed and entangled with sex and sexuality, it feels like a private emotion, but actually a lot of us are feeling it all the time. What are the origins of the play? I mean, what prompted you to start writing it? Uh, Were you involved in some kind of Warcraft online play? No, I've never played World of Warcraft. I researched it extensively for writing the script, but the ideas kind of came from multiple places and just all kind of came together. I was in grad school at USC in LA, and my professor, Belina Hasu Houston, in, in our first semester, just casually mentioned one day that she made money in college by writing love letters for men, for boys who had screwed things up with their girlfriends. And I was like, that's an incredible premise for a romantic comedy. Let's start from there. And so the first draft of the play didn't have Warcraft at all. But the other thing that I really wanted to write about was the very deep friendships and relationships that I had been making online since I was 13. And I had spent like a good chunk of my teenage years in different fandom communities and writing fan fiction and making really good friends. And I hadn't yet seen a story or a play or a TV show or a movie that was about how real those relationships can be and how satisfying those relationships can be. And sometimes how it's an easy place to hide if you actually don't want to interact with people in real life. So those two things kind of came together and and that's how the play was born. Had you been involved in theater when you were growing up? I grew up in different countries. I was born in the Bay Area um, in San Jose. And then we moved to Singapore when I was six. And then we moved to India when I was nine. And then I did middle school, high school, college in India. Where in India? In Chennai. When I was very small in the Bay Area, my dad did a lot of theater with his friends. And that was really, really fun to watch. And I really loved the vibe of those rehearsals that they would have at our house. But then I didn't actually get to do theater at all until I started college in India. And then once I started college... I went to an all-girls college in Chennai, and I just threw myself into the dramatics club because I think I had been having this hankering my whole life to do theater, but this was the first time I would really get the opportunity to do so. I loved theater a lot. I just fell in love with it in college. At that point, were you acting? What were you doing in college? I was acting. I was writing. I was directing. I was producing. You you jump in and you do everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what turned you on most to playwriting as opposed to uh, acting and directing? I'd always been writing. So I'd always been writing poetry or short stories and then fan fiction, like I mentioned before. I, um, I really, really loved writing. I loved acting and directing, but writing was where I realized, but I can create something completely new. You know, like when we were trying to figure out what plays to put on in college, there aren't that many plays out there for an ensemble cast of Indian women, right? And stuff that actually meant something to us and was pertinent to us. So I was like, we need more plays <laughs> about us in the English language. I can do that. So that's kind of where that impulse came from. And it's just become something that I enjoy the most. Audrey Shaker, when you wrote this first play in Love and Warcraft, you sent it out and people said, we like it, or how did that work? How did you get your start as a professional playwright then? This was my big break play, I like to call it. We did a, a workshop of it in grad school as part of the program. That was really, really fun, really gratifying. 
learned a lot. And then my final year of grad school, I submitted it to the Candida Graduate Playwriting Contest that's run by the Alliance Theater in Atlanta. And it's an incredible, wonderful program open to basically MFA graduating students in playwriting. And the winning play every year gets a full professional production at the Alliance Theater in Atlanta. So this play won, (laughs) which was amazing. And because of that, I got a production January of 2014, less than a year after I graduated from USC. And it was just a truly wonderful production, incredible experience. It got published because of that. And I got my agent because of that. It just opened all of these doors. I just got to meet so many other theater people. And the Alliance Theater in particular became a wonderful supporter of my work. And they wound up commissioning two more plays from me, both of which I'm really proud of. And they produced my play. So this play was my calling card, essentially. Let's talk for a second about House of Joy. Mm-hmm which deals with life in a kind of fantasy, real India. Yeah. What is the origin of that particular play? I went to college in India and I studied Indian history. That was my degree. I loved the Mughal history in India. It was my favorite thing to study. And I had been wanting to write a play set in that time period or inspired by that time period for a long time. In 2016, winter of 2016, I was at Juilliard in the Juilliard Playwriting Fellowship. The great thing about that program is that you're meant to write three new plays a year, which can be intense. You know, I had just finished a new play for that program and I was like, okay, now I need to come up with an idea for another one. I stumbled across this article about harems in the Mughal Empire. And even though I had studied it in college, this article just was kind of blew my mind and I didn't know half the things about harems and about these communities of of women and how they lived. That was pretty soon after the election, I remember. I was grasping for something to write about that would help me function. Right. I think as a lot of people were, I was in a a real whirlwind of emotion and feeling kind of in despair about the place of theater and all of this. And House of Joy and the story that started coalescing in my head gave me the opportunity to like run far away from America of 2016 and go to fantasy India of the 17th century That was fun and good for me, but also as the story kept developing, it was clear that I was just writing about what was going on right now. And, you know, I was very angry every day, and this was a good way to just get out my anger, pound the keyboard and write the story. Uh, So that's where it came from. (laughs) It's interesting you mentioned that because, well, for the past three and a half years, we've been living in some kind of strange alternate reality, but it seems to have taken a huge turn in the past eight months. For you as a playwright, knowing theater is kind of changing into a different reality for the moment, but as a playwright, when you start writing now, what happens to you? I mean, where do you go? I haven't written anything in several months. Part of that is because I'm also a new mom, so I I have a seven-month-old, and I feel like he's growing up. We're counting down the time of the pandemic with him because he he was born near the beginning of it. When I write a play, I have to visualize from the beginning. I have to visualize the space and the audience. I have to like see the stage in front of me. Many times I will think about what is the dream theater that I'm writing this play for? What is the space that I adore? And I want to see this happen in. And I think about that and I think about the audience and I think about them sitting together. I can't think about that right now. You know, it feels 
it feels too hard to imagine that at the moment. So I have not written anything for the stage, not since my play in Chicago got shut down. So I don't really know where I can go at the moment. You did do a radio play called Evil Eye, which I understand has become a film. So that was an audio play. The only thing I am kind of working on ideating in my head is another audio play right now, because I can imagine how it will work at this moment. Evil Eye, I wrote, I started writing in 2017, and we produced it as an audio play for Audible, which commissioned the play. And it went up on the Audible platform last year in May. And around the same time, the film adaptation began to happen as well. One of the things that has occurred, the BLM movement, racism in the theater, the fact that most of the people running New York theaters are white, Mm -hmm. the idea of diversity in the theater, what is your take on how theater itself is changing to accommodate this new reality, this new understanding of the role of racism in America? I don't know if it's changing. I don't know. I think it is incredibly hard to change power structures. And I don't know if it's changing. So I actually kind of went on a rant on on Facebook a couple of days ago, because it's been uh, five months, six months into all of the shutdowns. And theaters, live theater is not viable, not even until there's a vaccine, but until there is uniform application of the vaccine. It's gone for a while. And I have been personally quite disillusioned with the ways in which institutional theaters have not reached out to the hundreds of thousands of freelance artists that work for them, who are out of a job, who are out of benefits, who are facing real serious financial crises and and health crises right now. You know, I genuinely feel that economic part of it is also tied into you know, the racial part of it, it's it's all tied into power and who has power and who's sharing power and who are we fighting for? Who do we prioritize at any moment? I don't know if I'm really qualified to talk about the whiteness of theater. I've been a woman of color working in this system quite successfully for several years. And I honestly have conflicting feelings about that. I don't know. I, I don't want to be complicit in a system that's harming people just because it happens to be beneficial for me in a certain way. But I've also felt many times that my career also is not where I would want it to be simply because of many, many assumptions that kind of happen along the way of of what constitutes valuable art, stuff like that. Do you see your plays perhaps becoming more political then because of these feelings? Honestly, I feel like if you write something that has a very specific point of view and is deeply truthful to your experience, it will inevitably be political. That's just what politics is. It's your very specific point of view based on your personal experience, how you want to see the world and how you want to live as a human being. That's political. What do you see as the difference between, say, live theater, September 4th through 12th, and on-demand theater, September 18th through 25th? Film, television... What is the value of the live performance as opposed to these other edited performances? Oh, my gosh. Oh, you can never replace live theater. Never. <laughs> it, is, it is our oldest, most primal form of storytelling. It's gone away in the way we're used to in kind of conventional American theater for a short time. But it will never die out. It's the most wonderful way to tell stories. And I fully and truly believe that. 
I'm excited about In Love and Warcraft, not as a piece of live theater, but as a completely new, beautiful invention of live performance that reminds you a lot of the camaraderie of seeing live theater because you're you're seeing people do something in real time with you and you're terrified for them that something might go wrong but you're also in a chat room with a whole bunch of other people and you're all responding together you know it's a different kind of feeling you're not feeling like the unconscious silent audible responses that you might share with people that you're rubbing shoulders with inside a you know a cramped auditorium but there's so much of the zoom performance that is reminiscent of that but at the same time it it takes a lot of techniques from film and tv and and internet content and like the very beautiful and wonderful ways in which people create content specifically for the internet and it melds it all together i'm just inspired by what peter and the actors have done I just think it's like an incredible, incredible new art form that they're developing. And I would love to see more plays being done this way while we're in this situation right now. But gosh, nothing can beat live theater. Madhuri Shaker, I want to ask you about some stuff I found on IMDb. You were a writer for a comedy web series called Titus and Dronicus. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, I'm very proud of that. <laughs> what is it? Me and two other writers, Megan Kelly and Seamus Sullivan, Seamus, who is now my husband, we were very close. Megan and I went to the same MFA program at USC, and we wanted to make a TV show together. So we decided, let's try and do this for the internet. Let's try and make a short web series. So we wrote it and produced it together. Our director was Liz Rizzo. We had a really wonderful time making it. It's a Shakespearean web series comedy. So it's it's basically about two detectives called Titus and... Dronicus. And the conceit was that in each season, they would investigate a crime that's inspired by a Shakespeare play. So season one, which is as far as we got, was Hamlet. Episode one was basically about (laughs) these two detectives being visited by this dame, Ophelia. And, you know, we're drawing on all the noir stereotypes. And Ophelia's like, my boyfriend's going crazy. Can you figure out what's going on with him, please? And so Titus and Dronicus decide, okay, we're going to solve the mystery of why Hamlet's acting weird. And then in the course of getting involved in Hamlet's story, they then make everything worse. So that's kind of the premise of the show. Is it available for anybody to watch now? Oh, yeah, yeah. You can go to titusandronicus.com. It's all up there. You can go to YouTube and just type in Titus and Dronicus, and you can watch it. And then there was something called Paperless Pulp, a TV series? That was another audio play series. So that is available on Spotify and Stitcher and all of the podcast platforms. You are a staff writer for an HBO upcoming HBO series, is that correct? My first TV job was this incredible, wonderful thing. I got to write for Joss Whedon's new TV show, The Nevers, which is slated to come out on HBO probably 2021. Has it been filmed yet? It's in production in London. Hopefully things continue and and they're able to finish it. I understand they're restarting some productions now. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what's happening. And as a staff writer, did you fly to meetings and sit in a room with people or how did that work? So I was and am living in Jersey City. I got the job, which was amazing. And then I I moved to LA for six months to be in the writer's room. It was really great. I'm always fascinated by what the writer's room is like. Who was, was Joss Whedon the uh, showrunner? Yes, yes. He is the showrunner, creator, head writer, all of that. And how was it working with him? really great. I mean, it's so surreal even talking about it. You know, I grew up on his TV shows. 
Buffy. Yeah, Buffy and Angel and Firefly, like that. (laughs) That was what I grew up on. It was crazy enough to meet with him and then to actually get hired was amazing. And his second in command in the room was Jane Espenson, who's another one of my favorite TV writers. I'd never had a chance to meet her, but I'd always been following her work. And it was a, a wonderful, really diverse writer's room. Everybody was just lovely and so charming and so funny. And the show was right up my alley. You know, it's period. It's set in Victorian times. It's about really strong women who, who kick ass, which is his trademark. And House of Joy is very similar to that. So, you know, the timing was very fortuitous and it was just really cool to be in the room. Well, when you're in the room like that, do you have like writers just sitting around at a table shouting out ideas? I mean, how does a episode come together? I've only been on this one TV show so far, so I can't speak for all TV shows, but in right, general, but like, yours. yeah, so in general, it's, you know, it's Joss's show, it's his vision, it's his story, and he knows what he wants. And so we are there to help him get that vision in the form of scripts for episodes. So like he knows, you know, how the story begins, how the story ends, he knows the characters. And then there are gaps in the middle. And so we as writers really are brainstorming and helping figure out how the season kind of builds and develops. And then we all get scripts to write. We break the scripts in the room. We outline the scripts together, basically offering up ideas and the best idea wins. And, you know, when it's time to write the script, we take the outline that we've created together in the room and the writer goes goes off and <laughs> writes a very detailed outline and then they write a first draft and they write a second draft and you know as many rewrites as as time permits or as as is needed and you know and it's all in service of of the showrunner's vision so it, it, it you really need to have that skill of being able to write in the showrunner's voice especially a showrunner whose voice is as distinctive as Joss Whedon's so all of my uh, years of writing fan fiction actually really helped me out when you wrote fan fiction that was science fiction fan fiction no i wrote what? it for harry potter <laughs> You wrote Harry Potter fan fiction? Oh, yes. And I read so much of it. That's how I learned how to write. I I learned how to write by writing fan fiction. This was when you were in India? Yes. Yeah. You got into Harry Potter when you were in school in India and began writing fan fiction about Harry Potter and Mm -hmm. Hermione? Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Was it published online? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was published online. I I don't think like a lot of it remains, but you know, it was uh, it, it was published online. I made a lot of really great friends who I'm still great friends with. They are real life friends now. Like a few of them came to my wedding. You just found adventures to put them in. Yeah, there was this huge gap between books four and five, and that was when I was online. And so we were all trying to imagine what would happen in the later books, but we were also all trying to imagine what happened in the spaces between the books or what happened before the books even began. Like when you create a really rich world like Harry Potter, then it's a wonderful playground for aspiring writers to play in. Did you ever get any comment from Rowling herself? There was a whole thing where she doesn't read fan fiction because of copyright stuff. That's the thing. It's kind of like we are playing without the permission or the, <laughs> the the purview of the author, you know? So that that's the fun of it. You met a lot of people from around the world just by writing fan fiction. Yeah. I mean, one of the people I talked to and, and met and whose fan fiction I read was from Brazil. And then she got into the film school at USC when I was at USC. And then we wound up becoming roommates, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so like, there's like wonderful, wonderful stuff kept happening that way. Well, when you were growing up, was it just Harry Potter you were reading? Was there other fantasy? I think I read a ton of fantasy. I loved Terry Pratchett. I remember I really loved Terry Pratchett. So I loved Terry Pratchett. I loved Harry Potter. I I read a lot of British boarding school books, actually. So maybe there was a theme 
theme there. I read a lot. I read everything I could get my hands on, pretty much. In the world of theater at that point, were you thinking that much about it? Were you reading a lot of plays, too? I was. I was reading a lot of plays. I don't remember the names of any of those plays, because I would go to the library in Chennai, and I would just, like, find whatever plays I could I could get my hands on. I read a lot of short plays, and I remember, like, I think I developed a real fondness for David Ives, especially, who's such a genius when it comes to short plays. That was what I was into. What was it like for you the very first time you saw one of your plays on the stage? Oh, my gosh. I think I was about ready to faint, probably. The very, very, very first time I saw something I wrote on stage was I did do this one piece of theater in in school. I was in 10th grade, 10th standard, as we call it in India. And I, I wrote a stage adaptation of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. So, you know, keeping in theme of everything. And I wrote it entirely in verse. And it was for a dramatics competition held by the British Council, the local British Council for different schools in Chennai. I just remember it being so much incredible fun. My little brother was in the show and uh, they cast him because he knew how to roller skate. And we needed to show like a Quidditch match or like we just needed to show like a wizard on a broomstick. So we were like, oh, cool. We'll put him in, (laughs) put him in the show, make him like ride a broomstick, but like roller skate across the stage. And that'll be how we show flying. So then we get to the place where we're supposed to perform and it turns out we don't get a stage to perform and we get a carpeted room to perform in. <laughs> so my poor brother had to clomp across the stage in his roller skates. That's my first memory of like writing something that actually got performed. And I was not nervous then. I think I was just kind of stressed and then laughing about the whole thing later. But I think like the first time I saw In Love and Warcraft get performed, oh my God, that was, I was, uh, I was just a nervous wreck. I'm pretty sure my hands were shaking the whole way through. It was, it was pretty intense. Now, House of Joy had its world premiere at Cal Shakes. Did you do rewriting afterward? So interestingly, I did a lot of rewriting while I was in rehearsal for Cal Shakes because we were writing to that specific space and to those specific production opportunities and limitations. So a lot of changes took place in the script specifically for Cal Shakes. And then the second production of that play was at San Diego Rep. And um, the directors of that production, uh, Sam Woodhouse and Arpita Mukherjee, came to me. We actually like figured out the whole thing based on your old draft. Like We can actually produce the play <laughs> as the draft you had before Cal Shakes. And I was like, you know what? Fine. Let's, let's go for it. Let's see how it goes. And so they did the previous draft, which almost never happens to me. But it, I think, if, you know, if it gets another production, I, I'm definitely going to take another stab at, at rewriting it because I feel like I've changed a lot as a human being and our country is changing rapidly every day. And I, I just want to make sure that the play still feels authentic to, to who I am and where we are. Madhuri Shaker, playwrights have many, many plays just waiting there. So when you say you're not writing now, you may not be writing. But how many plays do you have that are partial plays that you plan to get back to? I have two plays that are partial plays that I would love to finish. Maybe three. I have this one play uh, called Let's Do That Hockey that I'm really proud of. We did a workshop of it in New York two years ago, last year. And it's about queer hockey players in the NHL. And I don't know anything about hockey. This was another one of those things where I was just like, let's just dive into a world I don't know anything about and do a lot of research. And I just got really curious about 
just the culture of hockey <laughs> and the culture of, of queerness in hockey. And the play has three actual hockey games on stage. And that's part of the challenge of the play is like you director, this is an invitation for you to figure out how are you going to st- stage hockey? So I would love to like actually make that a real thing. There's another play that was commissioned by Victory Gardens in Chicago that um, is still a work in progress. And it's, it's about a girl who ran away with a much older boyfriend and has returned home to her family and, and is finding it hard to integrate back. It's called Miriam. It, it, that's another thing that I feel like I have to wait for the right time for me to be ready to get back into that. Well, when life resumes, however it resumes, I assume that you'll probably maybe show up in a different writer's room or begin writing screenplays? Um, that's kind of what I'm doing now. I'm happy to get employment where I can get it. And I think there's a lot of really wonderful opportunities in, in the TV and films. It's a cool time to be a writer with a very specific point of view because the media landscape is so vast right now that there's space for you. There's so much content out there, basically, that if you have something, if you have a very interesting and personal story to tell, there is actually a there is space for that. You've been listening to an interview with Madhuri Shaker, whose play Love and Warcraft is being put on by ACT streamed, live streamed September 4th through 12th and on demand September 18th through 25th. Uh, That's part of the Interact at Home initiative from ACT. For information and tickets, you can go to act-sf.org. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast. (laughs) 